Welcome to Sermons from Iceland, a podcast that highlights the most recent sermons from Lofstofan Baptista Kirka, a Bible-based church in the Reykjavik, Iceland area. Pastor Gunnar Ingi Gunnarsson and the ministry staff of Lofstofan are grateful that you're joining us for today's study in God's Word as a supplement to your weekly routine of meeting with your local church to worship Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The following was recorded on Sunday, December 19th, 2021. Today's message titled from Pastor Elliot Jones, The Joy of Advent, Part 4 in a four-part series on Advent. If you want to open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19, I know that's not a usual Advent passage, but that's where we're going to be this morning. So if you would stand with me as we read the word of the Lord together. 1 Kings chapter 19 says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, the angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. And there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. 
Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So today we're gonna be considering this section of Elijah's life. Uh, And the main point I would want you to take away from this, but I want you to remember this running theme and we'll expand on this and elaborate on this as we walk through the passage. But God is always doing more than we know or see. And this gives us confidence as we go about the Christian life. And we'll see, we'll, we'll see how this kind of plays out through, uh, through this scene, through, uh, through Elijah's experiences here. Um, but I wanted to give maybe an example of this. So I imagine most of you in here have been kids before. And when you're a child, you, you trust your parents kind of no matter what, usually at least you, you know, you trust that even if something's going wrong, that you, you still trust mom and dad to kind of be able to, to figure it out, to get you out of that situation. Uh, and there was a time, you know, I, I think I've told many of you, I, you know, I grew up in North Africa. Um, and there was a time where we were in the country of Senegal, um, going into the, the town of Dakar. And we were going, we were, it was a break for my parents. We were finally able to get a a getaway. It had been a very long year for them, finally able to get away. And that year, this was like 2005, there had been just incredible flooding in the region. Um, And Dakar is on this peninsula. And there's only, I, you know, I looked it up on Google maps at the time there was only one road in. Now it looks like there's more than one road in. I think, I think they've worked on that since then, but 15, 16 years ago, there was only one road into this town and it was completely flooded. And so they'd rerouted all traffic through these tiny little back alleys and everything to get into the city. And these are, these are streets and alleys that were not designed to have cars go through them whatsoever. And it was the drive from where we were to this town. If everything went relatively normally was about eight hours, seven to eight hours. And it took us over 12 to get there because of just everything that was going wrong and we're driving through these streets and there's people everywhere. And at one point my parents actually said, roll up the window because we weren't sure exactly how, like if, if people were angry or, or not. And it was, I remember, I don't remember a ton from this trip. I just remember being really scared and being really nervous. Like, where are we and when is this going to end? Um, but I trusted that my parents would at least get us through this. I trusted that there would be, you know, there would be some relief at the end of this trip. And there was, we did eventually get to where we were trying to go and everything. And sometimes I think the Christian life is kind of like this. We, you know, things feel overwhelming to us. We don't see everything that's going on. We don't know everything that God knows, obviously. Like kids don't know everything their parents know. So we too don't always know necessarily what God is doing or what he's thinking or what his plan is. And we don't know why we're in this situation that feels burdensome, endless. It feels like it's never going to end. And yeah, I think, I think we see, I think Elijah, as we'll see today, I think really had to experience some of that. Um, you know, and we're preparing to celebrate the birth of Jesus, of our savior. And one of his titles is that he's the Prince of Peace. And he did come first and foremost to bring peace and reconciliation between us and God. You know, we are sinners separated from God and he came to break down the dividing wall between us 
and to bring peace between us and God. And yet I also think an outworking of the peace that we have is that we know as we go through the Christian life, we know that God is always working behind the scenes. He's always doing more than we're aware of. And that gives us confidence as we walk through the Christian life. Because we know that no matter what the circumstances, we know we, we can have confidence in God's character and we can have confidence that our heavenly father hasn't abandoned us, hasn't left us. It's not, we're not alone in this, but God is still at work. And so today let's consider Elijah and his situation uh, just over this, this chapter. And so as you see, you know, he, he's at the end of his rope here. You know, he's alone, he's despairing, he's ready to die. And in fact, he's asking that God would end his life. But what, what's God's answer to him? Was it anger? Was it disappointment? Was he, yeah, was he disappointed in Elijah's weakness and depression? Did he cast him aside as no longer useful to the master? Like, well, you've served your purpose, but apparently you're not useful anymore. No, he didn't do any of that. No, God met Elijah where he was and he showed him he, kind of, he pulled the veil back a bit and showed Elijah kind of what was going on. You know, sometimes depression and sometimes when we're depressed, when we're anxious, when, when we're burdened, you know, sometimes that clouds our vision of reality. Sometimes we start to, you know, we say and think things that aren't necessarily true. And what we need sometimes is we need God and he may do this through a brother or a sister. He may do this through personal time in his word may use his Holy Spirit. God changes our perspective on reality. And I say that at the risk of sounding new agey, but what I mean by that is the reality is, is that we're beloved by God and that we can trust the character of God. And sometimes we get tunnel vision. We don't see clearly or perceive clearly what's going on. And we need, we need to be brought back to what's actually really going on and what's really happening. And so let's consider Elijah and where he's at. So he has just seen God work a great victory at Mount Carmel. So to briefly recap chapter 18, uh, this was where, uh, so Elijah and the prophets of Baal had like a showdown. So Israel at this point is engaged in idol worship. They've completely forsaken God. Israel and Judah are two separate kingdoms at this point. There's been a civil war between them and they are now two separate kingdoms. And Ahab, the king of Israel, has married Jezebel, who is a, a foreign a foreign woman, and she has introduced Baal worship into um, into Israel. And so Elijah proposes a challenge to see who the real God is. And so the king agrees, and all the prophets of of Baal gather, and Elijah gathers, and essentially Elijah says, "The God who answers with fire is the real God." And the prophets of Baal go all all about their, their worship. They're trying to provoke an answer. And of course there's silence. And then God reveals himself at Elijah's request in really dramatic fashion. Fire comes down and consumes this altar and the people all fall to their faces and are like, wow, Yahweh is God. And it's this great, it's this great spiritual high. It's this great victory. God has glorified his name. He's revealed himself. And up to this point, there's been a drought on the land um, and suddenly it's going to start raining. 
And so there's this, Elijah's coming off this intense spiritual high. He's coming off just these great victories. And Elijah probably hoped and thought that at this point, there would be a revival in Israel. Like God clearly showed up. God clearly made him, made his power over false gods known. And just like he did over the Egyptian gods in the Exodus, he has clearly made his power known over the false gods. And so I imagine Elijah is probably hoping that uh, people will turn back to God, that the king and the queen will repent, that they will uh, repent of their idol worship, uh, that they'll come back. And unfortunately, there's no indication that any of that happened. The, the people in chapter 18 pay lip service to God, to Yahweh, but there's no indication that in their hearts and in their minds, there was any sort of turning back, that there was any sort of repentance And the queen, she certainly doesn't repent. She sends a messenger to Elijah saying, like, I'm going to kill you. And just an observation off of that is that people don't necessarily respond to visible demonstrations of God's power. I think sometimes we think, well, if God would just show himself, then everybody would believe. If God would just you, you probably have friends who have said this. If God would just, you know, show up, just show me that he's real, then, then I'd believe. But our problem is not a sight problem. Our problem is a heart problem. And Jesus gets to this in Luke 16. You don't need to turn there, but just in Luke 16, we have the story of, um, of Lazarus and the, the rich man and Lazarus. And, you know, the rich man dies and is in hell. And in this story that Jesus tells, he sees Lazarus um, with Abraham in heaven. And he begs that Lazarus would be sent to his brothers who are still alive to warn them about hell. And Abraham says, well, they have Moses and the prophets. They already have all this evidence before them. And the rich man says, no, that's not enough. If someone would rise from the dead though, that would be enough. And Abraham says, if they're not convinced by Moses and the prophets, then neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. And we see that true being true later. I mean, Jesus rose from the dead and people were looking for all sorts of ways to explain it away and to not believe in it. And so our problem is not one of sight, but it's a heart problem. And so Elijah despairs. What he expected to happen didn't come about. And we see it, we'll we'll actually see a lot of that in this chapter. A lot of what Elijah is expecting is not actually what happens and what comes about. And so the revival didn't start with the miracle that God worked. And furthermore, Elijah receives a death threat. And so he runs. He actually, he goes away into the wilderness. He runs for his life. And in this moment, Again, coming off this incredible spiritual high, he takes his eyes off God and he's afraid and he runs. There's no indication that God told him to run. Um, There's no indication that this was, you know, I think if he had, and I don't want to judge Elijah too harshly because I have no idea what I would do in this this, um, particular situation. But it seems here that Elijah, you know, well, he forgets his faith in God for, for a moment. And he runs because he's afraid and because he's, he's depressed. He's burdened. 
And it says he arose, this is verse three, ran for his life, came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. So he gets out of Israel and goes into Judah. He leaves his servant there, but he doesn't stay in Judah. He's just trying to get away. And he goes a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And so his purpose and his mind at least is to die. It's over. Ministry's over. It didn't work. Plan failed. I'm done. It's too hard. I'm too depressed. I'm too overwhelmed. And I'm ready to give up. Do we not feel that way sometimes? In the Christian life, when things weigh us down, when maybe it's other people, maybe it's circumstances, maybe it's, God, I expected this. And my expectation wasn't met. Maybe you come off these incredible spiritual highs and then you find yourself in the lowest of lows, like Elijah. Maybe the season of ministry didn't yield the fruit that you thought it would. Maybe the, you know, that person who always feels like they're just this close to accepting Jesus, then suddenly they're no longer your friend. Whether or not you're in full-time ministry, like as a vocation, and we all as Christians are in ministry, we're all seeking to see the kingdom of God grow. But whether or not you're in full-time ministry, the Christian life is not easy in many ways. People are sinners and sinners hurt people. Your own brothers and your sisters are gonna hurt you. They're gonna say the wrong thing. They're not gonna be enough for you sometimes. They're not gonna be able to be what you need them to be. The church hurts people. Brothers and sisters hurt us. The world mocks us. Maybe they hurt us as well. People don't respond to the promptings of God. God works these great miracles. He moves in people's hearts. And I mean, you see these revivals sometimes that happen and within a generation, it's almost as if they never took place. And the enemy works against us to lie to us, to hinder us, to encumber us, to entice us, to sin into ineffectiveness. And, and it can be easy to despair sometimes. Maybe you find yourself in such a position that you're just kind of enduring. You're just kind of trying to get through life so that, you know, in the end, it'll all be okay. As long as I can just kind of get through this. The enemy lies to us. He tells us that God needs us to be more, that we're not good enough for God or that we're just not qualified to be even used by God. Maybe you struggle with a mental illness. Maybe it's a seasonal thing. Maybe it's a chronic thing, whether that's depression, anxiety, bipolar. Iceland per capita takes the most antidepressants of any nation in the world. Now they're also called the happiest nation on earth. So you figure out where the disconnect is. But many of our brothers and sisters struggle with these sorts of things and they feel ineffective, I imagine, because I think the enemy lies to them and tells them, because you struggle with this, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. And I wanna say, if that's the case, if that's you at all, or if you know someone who's in this, First of all, the enemy is lying. That's not true. 
God is the one who has called you and redeemed you. And God is the one who can use you. And secondly, you're in good company. Elijah is considered one of the greatest prophets. He's one of like three people or two people who never died, whom God took up to heaven before they died. So you're in good company. So many of our heroes throughout the scripture were depressed, were afraid, were anxious. And God used them all in so many mighty ways. He was glorified in their weakness. And so Elijah is at a low, at probably the lowest point in his life to this point. He's depressed, he's despairing, and he falls asleep under, under a broom tree. But before he, he does that, he says two things. He's got two, two issues here. And look with me at uh, the second part of verse four. It says, and he asked that he might die saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life for I am no better than my father's. And so he's, he's saying two things. First, he's saying, my life has gone on long enough. The span of my days and years has reached its end. Like or what should be the end? That's enough. And second, I haven't actually accomplished anything. Nothing that I have done is going to last or remain. Everything I've done is in vain. And, you know, he, and remember, you know, depression can, it gives us tunnel vision, you know? And so Elijah's not actually seen clearly here. He's not thinking clearly. He's also telling God things that are really only for God to decide. You know, God's the one who decides when our life is over. God's the one who decides when it's been enough. Not us and not Elijah. And secondly, Elijah has also taken on more of a burden than God has given him or asked him to take on. It's not up to Elijah to determine whether or not his work was in vain or not. Elijah's job is to be faithful. Elijah's job is to do what God has called him to do. Elijah's job is not to turn the hearts and the minds of the people of Israel back. Elijah's job is not to cause fire to come down from heaven in an epic display of God's glory and power. And maybe we do that sometimes. Maybe we take on more than God has asked us to. But what, how does God treat Elijah? Because remember, we said that you, we can have confidence in God's character. How does God treat Elijah? You know, he's, he's awoken by an angel, by a messenger of God who comes with food and drink. And so Elijah eats and drinks. He goes back to sleep. The angel comes and wakes him up again and says, hey, eat and drink some more. I want to stop and consider this. Elijah is, he's low, he's depressed. And God could have rebuked him right here. I mean, Elijah is saying things that aren't true and also are not his to determine. God could have rebuked him, instructed him, But God actually just lets him sleep and gives him a good meal. He gives him rest and sustenance. How do we treat our depressed brothers and sisters? Because if you're like me, if one of my brothers and sisters is struggling, my first response is often, okay, what 
first can I say that will somehow make this all better? You know, I, my mind immediately starts running through what, what I can tell them. And sometimes what people need is, you know, some rest and maybe a good meal. What if maybe sometimes when our, you know, we take care of, if one of our members is giving birth, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll organize like a meal train for them. And that's awesome. We should do that. Have we ever thought of doing something like that when we know our brother and sister is down? I just said, hey, can I just make you a meal? And when's the last time you had a good night's sleep? Sometimes, sometimes the things within us that are spiritually awry are often some, sometimes the problem is simply that we just need to take better physical care of ourselves. And so that's first and foremost what God does. He lets Elijah sleep. He gives him food. He sends his messenger and he tells him to keep eating because the journey is too great. And brothers and sisters, the journey is too great for you and I. The journey of life is too much for us without sustenance from God, without daily sustenance from God. Like the manna that he provided for the Israelites in the wilderness, so we too need to have daily sustenance from God. We can't live off spiritual highs. We can't live off our Mount Carmel experiences like Elijah did. Spiritual highs are awesome. They feel really good. You feel super close to God. And then you come crashing back down to reality sometimes. And we're not designed to live off just these experiences every now and then. Those aren't enough to sustain us. We actually need the daily communion with God. And we'll see this point actually unfold a little more as we keep going. So Elijah eats, he, verse eight, he arises or he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. So he actually goes to Mount Sinai uh, where God met Moses. That's where in the wilderness of Horeb. Um, and verse nine, it says there, he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And so Elijah's given this journey. He's given this time to kind of think and reflect, I imagine. Imagine he prays and takes, takes some time. It's only when he gets to the mountain that God asks him what he's doing. Like, what are you doing here? What's up? God's, to put it maybe a little more in, in a slang, God's checking in on him. And he, God knows exactly what's in Elijah's heart, but he gives him the time and the space to express what's on his heart and what's on his mind. And so Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord. This is verse 10, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, only I, or even I only, sorry, am left and they seek my life to take it away. And Elijah maybe feels that it's not fair how he's being treated. You know, he's been, he's, as he says, he's been very jealous for God. He wants to see people saved. He wants to see hearts changed and transformed. And yet, like he wants to see God glorified. And yet he's being hunted. He's being pursued. Things aren't happening. Even though miracles are taking place. 
people aren't coming to faith. He's done everything that God has asked of him. And yet it seems that nothing's happened. His expectations again haven't been met. And I think there's a lesson for us in here too, is what should we as servants of God expect as we serve God? You know, Jesus, he, he says to count the cost of discipleship before you engage in it. And part of that cost is to not be loved or liked, to maybe not see success, to not have earthly goods, but it is to be right with God and to have joy and peace with God. But that doesn't mean we'll have successful ministries. That doesn't mean we'll have a lot of things or live comfortable lives. We might, God may bless us with those things and entrust us with those things. But Jeremiah is considered one of the greatest prophets and he never saw a single convert. By any human standard, that's an absolute failure of a ministry. And yet by God's standard, well done, good and faithful servant. And Elijah, I think part of the reason his expectations haven't been, are not met is because he's taken on the role of God in his ministry, probably without meaning to and unconsciously, but he's started to expect that if he does certain things, he will see people come to faith. He will see results. And God doesn't necessarily promise us that. But this is what Elijah feels and God lets him express that. And then what happens next? Verse 11, he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. That's God talking. Basically says, come here, I wanna show you something. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Elijah needed to experience God anew and not experience him in the sense of goosebumps or like some just tremendously emotional experience. He didn't need another Mount Carmel. He didn't need another spiritual high. What he needed was to commune with God. And he needed to be reminded of where he would find God. And God isn't in the strong wind or the earthquake or the fire. These are all natural phenomena that God has the power to bring about and to do. But communion with God was found in the still silence in the presence of God. And maybe that also wasn't what he was expecting. Maybe he was expecting to find God in the earthquake or the wind but God was in the still silence. And so where do we look for God? Are we chasing those spiritual highs? Are we chasing the next big thing? Elijah experienced God's power. He saw God do many mighty things. I mean, he saw fire come down from heaven. I don't think any of us have seen that. If you have, I would like to hear about it. So let me know. 
But Elijah found communion and refreshment for his soul in the still silence with God. And that's where God spoke to him. That's where God gave him fresh purpose. That's where God renewed his strength and sent him out again. That's where God restored his peace, his confidence. And God asks Elijah again what he's doing. And Elijah seems content with his reply. He still says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And, you know, like we've already said, Elijah, he's worried that his work and labor and efforts have all been in vain. He's worried, you know, he feels he's, he's, been, he's been very jealous for God. He's done a lot, but he's worried that justice will not be done, that the wicked will continue to go unpunished, that his ministry has been a failure and that it's over. And I think that's it. I'm sorry. He's worried about those two things. And so how does God answer him? God first gives him a task to do. God re, he doesn't discard him. He just says, hey, I actually still have work for you to do. Your life isn't over. Your days aren't done. Your ministry isn't over. I still have things for you to do. And so he tells him to go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you'll anoint Haziel to be king of Syria. Jehu to be king over Israel and Elisha to be prophet in your place. So first of all, Elijah still is in the service of his God and King. God's still moving, still working, still bringing about his plan. And furthermore, the work isn't going to stop with Elijah. There's going to be a successor, someone who will continue the work in the ministry and even more, someone who will be a friend and a co-laborer with Elijah. You know, Elijah's been working alone. God gives him a friend and a brother, someone who will help carry the burden with him. And God also comforts Elijah with the knowledge, knowledge that justice will be carried out. You know, we see in verse 17 that the one who escapes the sword of Haziel shall, Je- shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. And then lastly, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. You know, Elijah says, I'm the only one left. I'm alone. And we actually learn in the previous chapter that there are at least a hundred other prophets of God that a man whose name I'm not going to be able to pronounce without looking at it. Oh, well, that's actually quite simple. Obadiah. Um, I forgot. Uh, Obadiah was faithful and hid prophets from the killings and from being hunted. And so Elijah is the only prophet in the sense that he is the only one executing the office of prophet. Like he is God's chosen first and foremost spokesperson, but he's not the only one left serving God and teaching the people. And God reassures him of that. There's still 7,000 faithful in Israel who need him, who God is, God's going to use Elijah for these people. And so as we wrap up, I want to draw a few just applications for us. And so first of all, God is always doing more than we know or see. And that gives us confidence. We can have confidence in the character of God. 
because we know that he hasn't left us, he hasn't forsaken us, that when we are burdened, when we are, when we feel alone, when we've got tunnel vision, God's character is such that he doesn't abandon us. He doesn't discard us. He's gentle with us and he gently restores us. And we can take joy and comfort knowing that there's still work to do for our King, for our Savior and for our Lord. And it's a joy to serve him and to be a part of his kingdom building work. And I don't know what sort of struggles you may face or how the enemy lies to you, but I want you to know that brother and sister, that you have peace with God and that God is the one who qualifies you and God has work for us all to do. God is well-pleased and glorified to use his people, to use broken and sinful people to accomplish his purposes. And sometimes depression, anxiety cloud our perception. They make us think that we are unfit for ministry, but that's not true. God's the one who calls us and who qualifies us. And second, we need to have times of silence with God. We need daily manna. We need communion with God. It's in the times of stillness and silence with God that we find refreshment for our souls. The spiritual highs are awesome. And it's amazing to see the power of God at work. But what we really need for the day-to-day is that daily manna. And so when was the last time you had a time of quiet, still communion with God? When was the last time you took, even if it's just a few hours or a morning or a day even, to just be with God and to be still before God? And finally, the journey of life is too great for us. We can't do this on our own strength, brother and sister. We're not called to be God. We are not called to do what only God can do. We're called to be faithful. We're called to obey what God has called us to do. Remember, we are branches and Jesus is divine. And apart from him, we can do nothing. And so we are to abide in him and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. As we are faithful in that, God will bless that and use that. God's always doing more than we know or see. And that gives us peace. That gives us confidence. We can trust God. We can trust his character as we go about the Christian life. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are a loving father. That when your children struggle, when your children are burdened or hurt, God, I thank you that you are just so gentle with us. You care for us. God, thank you for Elijah. Thank you for just that how you restored him and how you changed his perspective, how you helped him to see reality more clearly, how he got to see you more clearly. Thank you for his example. Thank you for what we can learn from him. And God, I thank you that you are well pleased to use broken instruments for your purposes and for your glory. And so God, as we go forth from here, I pray that you would just show us what it is you have for us. Show us the good works you have for us. And may we abide in Jesus. May we bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
You've been listening to Sermons from Iceland, a weekly podcast highlighting the Sunday teaching ministry of Lofstofan Baptiste Kyrka in Reykjavik, Iceland. If you have a desire to see the gospel spread in Iceland, consider partnering with the Iceland Project. For more information, go to theicelandproject.org. If you live in Iceland or plan on visiting Iceland soon, make plans to worship with us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. Our address is Fagrating 2A, Kopavar, only 7 miles or 12 kilometers southeast of downtown Reykjavik. You can reach Pastor Gunnar via the Lofstofan Facebook page or by email. His address is lofstofan at lofstofan.is. Join us next week for another Bible-based and Jesus-centered message on Sermons from Iceland. Iceland.